one. And Sean Paul Murphy, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm glad to be here. So I see, uh, well, first off, are you, you're an adjunct. How does how does that, how do you pronounce that word? Adjunct, adjunct I believe. Adjunct, adjunct uh, yes. prof, professor at Towson. I'm a Towson grad myself. Oh, really? What year? Oh, what? Maybe I shouldn't ask. Oh, geez. No, it's fine. It's fine. Oh, uh, four. I graduated. Oh, four. Oh, I, I graduated uh, 83. So from Towson. Yeah. And then you decided to go back and, and help out us uh, str young, struggling writers and editors. Well, they want to bring some people in who had some success in the field. So I just teach one section per semester. What's and that? It's more, it's more for the fun. It's more for the giving back because God knows you know, have I take the time I take off of my job to do it, you know, it's a loss. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Uh, do you know Keith Strandberg? Name sounds familiar to me. Yeah, he he was he was there. He um, I guess when I was there, he was there. He was, he was pretty much my mentor as far as screenwriting, producing things of that nature. And uh, his credits are uh no Retreat, No Surrender. You remember those old 80s action movies, No Retreat, No yeah. Surrender, all the Billy Blanks movies, the martial arts movies with Billy Blanks and uh, Rowdy, Rowdy Piper. And he mm -hmm. produced, he wrote and produced a lot of those uh, action movies. So uh, oh, cool. That, it, those, are, those are great credits to have. Yeah, absolutely. So it's nice yeah. to have a teacher who actually um, knows what they're doing. Oh, yeah. And, and, and so, fact, yeah. I often will dispute common, common academic knowledge and say, um, you know, anybody who tells you this doesn't know what they're talking about. And then I, of course, mention the name of the department head. I say, unless he said it or the name of the um, deputy department head, of unless course. he says it, because they're right and I'm wrong. Of course. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, Sean Murphy, uh, uh, writer, editor, you have quite a few credits under under your belt um, also. And gl glad that you're over uh, helping the, the Towson students. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to these days. Well, um, you know, I was thinking that this whole lockdown thing would give me some free time. That proved not to be the case. Um, you can see a computer behind me. In addition to teaching at Towson, I also work as an editor at Discovery. I also do freelance writing projects, and I also do um, freelance editing projects, and I do some uh, periodically and occasional, you know, I'll be involved as a producer in something as well. So um, I have a ton of stuff going on. You can't probably see it, but there's my book, Chapel Street. It's a horror novel, came out on July 3rd. That's the what the COVID's kind of hurting because um, I can't even have a book release party. I've got this uh, cool party gonna, I'm going to set up in a, uh, it's a horror novel in the cemetery near where I live in Baltimore. And um, we're, we have no idea when it'll happen. End of August, you know, who knows? Yeah. You know, and that'd be the place to get the local publicity, you know, the TV stations, um, the, you know, the managers and people work at all the bookstores, get them out there. But, um, you know, have no idea when that's going to happen. So I'm just um, just waiting. Other than that, I have a feature in development right now. And I was getting weekly updates before the COVID went bad. And then the update stopped. But on the bright side, you know, there, there is action going on. You know, there's money attached now and it's going out to um, actors. You know, the, the script's going out with solid offers. So things are going on. But, you know, even if it, even if people, we get the right cast, you know, when can when can we shoot? You know, that's scheduled to be shot in um, Arkansas. So mm -hmm. 
Arkansas is open, but that doesn't mean where everyone's coming from is open and they want to get there. doesn't mean anyone would want to fly there. But, you know, we all hope for the best. Yeah. Well, it does. And you're right. It doesn't mean anybody wants to go there because, yeah. you know, it's uh, a lot of arguments, a lot of back and forth have had with other colleagues, partners, friends, families that I, I don't know what's going on there. Like, I can't, I'm not going to fly and, and who knows who's going there and who knows what's going to happen in a week or two or what kind of surges are going to happen here or there or anywhere. Exactly. So, and I know that uh, I heard that the uh, Screen Actors Guild did shut down one movie, but I don't think there's much shooting right now. And um, mm-hmm. you hear about the restrictions that, you know, I don't know exactly what the rules are, but the restrictions seem to be such that make it very difficult or expensive to shoot a movie, you know, union and, wouldn't want to do it any other way. So um, most of the stuff I had shot was was always on um, Screen Actors Guild, but not always all the other things. Certainly, um, certain not always DGA, not always WGA. In fact, never WGA. This film that's in uh, development now is a WGA film. So I hope it will happen. Get me my union card finally. So you you kind of touched upon how uh, you know things have slowed down for you with this. Uh, how are things personally? Everything uh... personally, it's you know, it's it's a little wearing that you don't get to socialize as much, but I get to spend more time with my wife and family, so that's good, you know. So I, I certainly enjoy that. You got to take the um, pluses with the negatives, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, it you know, a lot of socializing would sometimes involve people in the business, so you lose coming to the business thing and. I'm still working as an editor all the time and you don't get to see the producers and your other colleagues like you used to. So, um, you know, a lot of the business was already heading, post-production was already headed to people working alone in their rooms. But, you know, when you, when you, um, when you do that consistently, you know, you use, lose the human element, which is important in continuing in the business, you know? Absolutely. Uh, a colleague of mine was talking about, you know, putting together this reality show about Carnival, you know, in Trinidad. And, you know, the the first thing out of our mouths is who's going to go there? Like, we want to make this show about Carnival, but are we going to go there? Are we going to hire a crew there to just shoot stuff and then we edit remotely? And, and it, you know, conversations, you know, evolve and, and you start, you know, going off on tangents and it turns into at what point is our films going to be automatically you know uh automated you know ai auto automatically making a movie taking you know there's so much information out there and there's so much there's so many recordings and so many digital recordings and readings of human responses and human interaction that at some point when is that one movie that one ai movie work where a computer automatically write writes a movie does CGI of all these characters and elements and props and environments and, and action sequences and, and interactions edit it, edit it, uh, edits it, and then just, and streams it. And it's in the, it, from, from development to streaming, this was this automated AI movie. Well, I, I think it's definitely on the way. We already have AI characters. We brought people back from the dead to appear in movies. Um, so it's a matter of time. I've read some scripts every once in a while, they try to develop an AI program that can write scripts and the scripts tend to be kind of screwy. So, mm-hmm. um, because the computer can't think like a human mind, but sure. 
you know, um, right now I consider that the business is essentially in production side, you know, other than, you know, you turn on any TV and a lot of shows and a lot of stuff we do on our networks, um, you know, you're getting a lot of people on Zoom, you know, the news shows, it's all Zoom now, you mm -hmm. know, so it, you know. I think we're shut down for um, at least until September. I don't think. And like you're talking about this project with Carnival, what makes you even think it's going to actually happen? You know? yeah. Or well, if it happens, it'll be a fraction of what it was and therefore not as probably reached what you want anyway. You know, like whether it's, whether it's Mardi Gras or Carnival or an EDM show, yeah. you know, uh, exactly. Like you said, like even the event is the, is the event even going to happen? that we are documenting and i certainly hope so I, and i definitely you know i'm i'm on board on any just about any project but like you said with you know family wife and kids and trying to keep them safe as well which is obviously my first and foremost obligation of course i'm not quick to jump on a plane or jump uh, obviously i can't drive to you know, Trinidad or the Caribbean. So I got to, you know, you got to fly. That's going to be a long drive. You, of course, you're going to have to get on a boat at some point, get on a plane at some point. And you just don't know who's got what, when. And it's, I think we have to really look at what's, you know, how people are producing things nowadays. And a lot of people are doing animations. A lot of people are, like you said, Jimmy Fallon is doing his whole show on Zoom. You yeah. Know? It maybe maybe not the exact program Zoom, but... so to see these people doing it on zoom but after a while it's sort of like you know i'm over it i'm putting in a movie <laughs> you know? yeah i'm putting in something i was shot before and you know? exactly exactly and you're and you're right there's so many classics you just mentioned uh the maltese falcon which i yeah. haven't seen it forever and and there's there's so many class there's so many films that are on my watch list to watch that that could fill the time because of obviously we're going to get back to this we're, we're going to get back to a semi-normal semi semi-classic original semi-new normal whatever it's called but uh you know a lot of things you know people are talking about the non-theatrical releases like you know i'm a netflix subscriber like a lot of people and i also get the um dvds because i do like to watch the blu-rays i prefer it to streaming and I'm just looking at the selection of like Blu-rays. The new releases are terrible. You know, it's like, you know, the pipeline has been clogged because people are still holding back movies for theatrical. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's even like just watching, um, just looking at my Netflix queue, and it's like, you know, nothing new on here. Nothing, um, nothing really fresh. Nothing. You know, it's all it's all old. It's older stuff, and I'm perfectly happy with older stuff. But it's like the pipeline is uh, drying up and you know to me the COVID will be over when they finally released the James Bond film James Bond 25 uh, I forgot what it's called so that's you know they were smart they pushed that one back um, I think yeah until almost you know end of fall mm -hmm. so, summer movie and they pushed back yeah. too you know the um, yeah and they were going to go with that. That was, I think that was about to, it was supposed to be out by now. I think it was supposed mm. to be out first or sec, second week about in July. And they were holding firm to putting it out. And then they just said, "Nah, not going to do it." Like a, a, a lot, and there's a lot of this mysterious hype behind it. And Christopher Nolan's new new film, yeah. And and it's what is the, they're not all the trailers are just so 
uh, you know, keeping the secret, you know, and and, yeah. everyone, and building all this hype. And what is this movie about? So yeah, it's it's. Uh, I'm anxious to see it. I unfortunately, well, I can see from your flag, you're in Maryland as well, mm -hmm. and um, it varies in this state. Um, I don't know exactly where you are, but in Baltimore, I think we're in still stage three. Nothing's going on here. I don't think any theaters except the Benjis is open at this moment. The Benjis Drive-In. And they have so many restrictions, it makes it difficult to go there. I'm, I was thinking of going there this weekend just to just to see a movie. So that's, but so now, so there's these little, there's these little pockets of, of, of uh, hope that, you know, like these little things like, like drive-in theaters coming back. Yeah. And, uh, and you know the streaming streaming has been kicking it off. I've I've always been more of a stream home entertainment type of person. You know, stay home and relax. You know, you go to the movie theater and you and just to go see a movie with one person, you end up blowing like a hundred bucks. But, if you blew it right, <laughs> if you blew it right. But I, I was always I was always a big you know online streaming Netflix Hulu kind of guy. But I'm really excited about this whole drive-in theater experience because I think. You know, driving's kind of died out. I think from from based on my experience in the late '80s, I remember seeing. Uh, I, I would say they were dying out in the um, in the '70s. '70s, because we always used to go to them, and one by one, they all closed except the Benjis, at least around here. Mm -hmm. And I'm um, sorry to see them go. I usually try to make it to the last screening at a uh, drive-in. So, um, but I, I go to the movies a lot, not as much as I used to. In the '90s, I would go at least 150 times a year. I think the most most times I went to the movies, I think was none, was uh, ninety eight or ninety nine, and I went to one hundred ninety eight times because I ke I kept a movie diary, so um, I knew where I went, and who I saw it with, whatever film. So that was a lot of movies. Yeah, in that my is. defense, I did have a um, theater chain pass that <laughs> I bet. A friend of mine who worked for someone in the media was kind enough to give to me, so I probably saw. I probably saw a hundred of those movies free, but a lot of them I still had to pay for. Sure. No, that, I and mean, that's definitely a unique journal to keep and a unique experience. So uh, speaking of which, is there, uh, we were talking about, you were talking about streaming. Has, has there been a film or a series of films or a series or even, you know, a book or a series of books that you've been, that, that you uh, read, that you saw, watched, you know, really blew you away, kind of took your mind off things, uh, well, I I had to say I went back to the past. I um, my wife and I our big thing when we were really on lockdown is we watched the uh, Larry Sanders show, you know, starring um, Gary Shandling. Oh yeah, HBO series. We watched every episode of that, and and my wife was at the point where it's like, oh, they better start opening up stuff. We only have we only have twenty episodes left. Uh oh, they better start opening stuff up. We only had fifteen, mm -hmm. so. It kept us up during during the worst part of the lockdown, but that's you know we were watching Dead to Me, we were watching a few other things. I you know I, I like the streaming series, but you know I'm, I'm I prefer more of a movie. We've been watching a lot of stand up comics as well. You know that's something you can get in and out of quick. And of course, yeah. I strongly recommend for those people still at home my new novel Chapel Street, which is Chapel really Street Touchpoint Press on July third. It's available and it's available ebook, paperback, and hardcover. You know, Amazon and um, Barnes and Noble. So you can get your Kindle, you can get your Nook, 
You know, you can get your hard cover, you can get your paperback. And if you live anywhere near me, you can get it signed. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's, that's awesome that, um, you know, you still found an opportunity, especially, you know, writing. I think, you know, if there, if there's no, there's no opportunity for a screenwriter to get a movie to, to write their movie, write it, write a novel. Right. And yeah, exactly. Um, my philosophy has changed considerably that um, now I, um, unless I'm working as a part, unless it's a commissioned work, you know, um, here's like some of the movies I wrote. You see this stack of films back there, I have 14 produced features and uh, most of them were commissioned. But when I work on a spec script now, I, I, I write it as a book first. Mm-hmm. You know, it definitely, it definitely gives you more leverage, you know, and the thing is, you know, your book, every producer in Hollywood wants something that's been curated before they reach it. That's why they take, you know, they view things that come to them by an agent because they're like, well, the agent has already screened out all the crap, you know, and what he has may be crap, but it's a higher level of crap. And um, it's the same way with, um, you know, books, you know, they're, everyone's self-publishing now, but to me, I'm not writing, you know, I wrote Chapel Street with the intention that it would become a movie as well. I already have the script for it, but, you know, now I'm just waiting for some book reviews to come in. And, you know, so it's traditionally published and people are like, well, you know, you could make a dollar more per sale if it's, um, if you self-publish it or something like that. And it's like, I'm not in it for the dollar more a sale. You know, if I, you know, because they don't take, you would have to have, a book that sells a million copies for um, Hollywood to take it seriously self-published. But, you know, just the fact that a publisher, a traditional publisher read your manuscript, liked it enough to put the effort in to publish it. I mean, that's essentially being curated, like going through a agent or something. Mm-hmm. You know, so it gives you more power. And also like the film that's in production now, there's considerable debate about a major change in the script. You know, and I'm not in favor of the major change, but had I published this as as I anticipated wanted to and published it as a book and it had a fan base, they would be less likely to make this change they're making in the script. One of the producers wants to make because they it would, you know, fundamentally change it and they would worry about they would be worried about disappointing fans of the book. Mm-hmm. So my advice is for everybody, if you're a screenwriter, try writing it as a book first if it's a good idea. And there's this misconception that um, writing a book is more difficult than writing a screenplay, but it's actually it's actually the reverse. Screenwriting to and to do screenwriting well is much more difficult than writing a book. You know, people are worried about writing the descriptive passages. Well, you can be as descriptive as you want because it's not like a movie. When you write a book, the audience is picturing it. You like a movie, it, people experience things differently. When you're watching a movie, all the decisions have been made and it flows over you and through you. Mm-hmm. And it's an experience that will last anywhere from like 85 minutes to two and a half hours. And all the decisions have been made. In a book, you're involved in a creative process with the reader because no matter how much you describe, they're seeing it differently than you are. Mm-hmm. You know, they're creating the visuals with you and surpassing you 
because of the capacity of their mind to imagine something and the capacity of your mind to describe it. You know, it's um, you, you know, you're limited by the word number of words in the book. And that's the key. You know, a lot of screenwriters, a lot of screenwriters I talk to say, oh, I'd love to write a novel, but it's easier to write a screenplay. But, you know, this is the point I brought up earlier. But actually, it's not true. You can actually um, a screenwriting. You're really limiting yourself because you have to express the entire motivation and mental bearings of a character strictly through, you know, dialogue and action. You know, you can't go into the head. Yeah. When you when you write a book and you can actually go into the heads of your characters, you will find that it, it's easier because, you know, the prospect of having to um, always show something and always put something in visual terms is more challenging than just going with the moment emotionally in the head. So any of my advice to screenwriters is try writing it as a novel first. Also, too, you'll get to know your characters more. And you'll force yourself to make more decisions. And I'll say in the case of Chapel Street, my uh, book, that book is a first person narrative. But um, when I wrote it to a movie, you know, a first person narrative, you'd think there'd be, I did not go with any voiceover. It's not it's not first person narrative in the, um, in the thing. And a lot I had to not only compress and cut things, but also a lot of things that were going on in his head. I had to pr present differently in, in the script. And that sort of the story would be told more visually, mm -hmm. you know, than by narrative. Yeah. And, and you raise a good point with filmmaking and what, what I've, what I've noticed a lot with filmmaking for a number of aspects, you know, I'm a, what, what few projects I've worked on, I've always tried to see, you know, the pr production hacks, you yeah. know, I can't afford explosions. I can't afford, you know, squibs and, and blanks and guns and, and, uh, and an armorer. But I've noticed, you know, that a lot of filmmakers, you know, come up with these little cool tricks. And it's also like having the audience of the film create their own, ver create their own scenes in their head when, let's say, you know, the two main characters having a fist fight, but then, you know, the kind of the camera kind of pans away from them and the fist fight is off camera and yeah. that builds more attention. You hear glass breaking, you hear thuds, you hear, you know, fists against face. You can hear all these different sound effects and, and, and maybe some shadows and maybe some, you know, glints. Maybe you hear, you hear a gun go off and you hear a flash, but you're not seeing it. It's all off camera and they're focusing on, you know, uh, some artifacts, some art, some articles, some artifact uh, that that is a key prop in the story. But yeah. all all this crazy action, there's explosions. I forget what movie it was, but you know somebody was watching, uh, you know a, a pandemic, a, a zombie apocalypse, something, and you could see explosions, the flash of the explosions on the guy's face as the guy's horrified watching, and you hear all these gunshots and screams and yelling. And that is a way of, you know, the director, the writer director doing that kind of novel trick where it's the, the viewers yeah. are kind of like reading a book and they're creating that scene within their head. God knows what's going on outside that window. Yeah. So the viewers, the viewers are even more horrified by, you know, amazing acting by somebody or just amazing sound effects and amazing camera work by by panning away from the action. And yeah. it's all off camera and it's and it's creating a whole nother universe behind the camera that the viewer is creating in their head, just like they would be reading a novel. Yeah. You know, I think one that's another 
good thing about a novel is that you have an unlimited budget. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. And, and right, I'm hearing right. some breakup. Are you hearing it? No, no. Okay, good. I'm, 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 I hear, I hear, I hear everything perfectly. You hear, 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 hear everything. Yeah, 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 I do, I do. So, so but, uh, but like you said, like you said, you said, no budget, budget, and so that's a budget, budget, too. That's a production, production hat. It's to do all that stuff off camera. And, yeah. and instead of instead of all this all CGI, CGI all these all these explosions, explosions and pyro and when when props props you just you just do all do all the sound, sound effects off camera. There's a way there's a way of building your story, building your film, film, building your scene with with you know one one tenth tenth of the budget. Yes, and, but um, but even now, even with that, those devices in today's environment, you know, I mean, the co- you know, I mean, we're all getting worried about this, and we should worry, but. You know, I'm not one of these people who thinks things are fundamentally changing. You know, production is going to continue. You know, the big question is what's going to happen to the theaters. But people are still going to want entertainment. But if the theaters die, expect um, And also, as people give up owning media like Blu-rays and DVDs, CDs, the stream, the price of the streaming services are definitely going to rise, too. You know, and there aren't going to be as many of them. You know, they will, some will be weeded out, and there's probably some that haven't come in yet that are going to be good. But, you know, the, things are changing, but it, the COVID may, um, and, you know, accelerate the change. But still, you know, people are still going to want shows. They're still going to want, you know, filmed entertainment. They're still going to want books, you know. The people I feel sorry for most are, have always been the musicians. You know, because, you know, with their, what they get for the streaming is so outrageously low. Everyone has to tour. If you don't tour, you're not going to make any money. And right. I remember working with this one guy and we've been we were screwed over a couple of times and by production companies and distributors. But we could always turn to each other and say, well, at least we're not musicians, you know, because mm-hmm. these musicians, um, you know, what they get for, you know, people it's on YouTube and they get 0.0001 cent per stream. You know, people are still making a fortune, but you know, you, the average journeyman non-monster size act, you know, has to work twice as hard now as he had to in the seventies and eighties, in my opinion. I think yeah. no one's going to dispute that. Yeah. yeah I'm, yeah. And, um, you know, me and some colleagues, you know, one of them's a DJ and we're, we're trying to figure out this, these live DJ streams of him, you know, playing some original music he produced and him mixing it and, you know, doing like a two hour live DJ set, live music mix set on YouTube and how to make that, uh, you know, profitable, how to make that uh, at least a marketing tool, if not if not bringing in, you know, thousands of dollars, tens of thousands, not even a hundred dollars, but mm-hmm somehow making that another marketing tool for him and for myself and, and, uh, you know, branching out from just more than just music and more than just streaming, maybe ads. And, and, uh, it's like, you gotta do, it's almost like you gotta do 10 things to strike gold at one. Exactly. For one thing, like, um, with my book, Chapel street, the uh, publisher, recommended that all the authors for at touchpoint press to um live read a chapter from their book just you know to keep you know awareness 
and entertain people. And I'm not one to do a live read, but I did. What I did was I read, um, I have another book out that was previously published also by Touchpoint. And I have like two works in progress. And I simply, um, I read chapters and I put visual stuff over and put them on YouTube and put them places, you know, on one hand, it's, um, it's fun. It's entertainment designed to keep people entertained during the COVID, a little piece of free entertainment, but it also markets the book and um, they were fun to do. You know, the, um, it was a kind of wearing cause I told myself I was going to do a, um, do a chapter of one of my, read a chapter and then do a little film of, you know, film and put it on YouTube, put it elsewhere once a week with my uh, rest of my schedule that turned out to be a rather daunting uh, experience. <laughs> I ended up doing sure. chapters of stuff. But um, I'm glad um, I'm glad I said I'd keep doing it while uh, Maryland was in lockdown. Fortunately, they on some of the states were unlocked, and I used that as an excuse to stop. <laughs> some of the counties in the state were unlocked. I still have my it. COVID hair. Haven't I haven't cut my? <laughs> yeah, same here. That's why I'm wearing the hat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, forced vacation, right? Like it's it, it it is what you make of it. You know, it's a forced family vacation. Um, I am, I am getting in some work and, and I'm finding ways of, of being productive in my time, but I, you have to find it. I, I always feel like make the, make the best of it. You got to look at the positives, not the negatives. You know, you, 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 what is that? Yeah. Hope for the best plan for the worst and then make the best and, and just, and make the best of it and keep striding through and, and, uh, you know, adjust and over adjust. And overcome, I guess, is that marine, that old marine saying. I don't. Yeah. But, but um, what would you say is next on the agenda? What's what's what is your what's your next set of goals? Your next agenda for uh, say the next six months to a year? Well, I'd love to get the um, book on a better footing. Uh, you know, even just have a release party and get some. You know, get some more um, press. You know, also a lot of these places that do press are undermanned as well at this time. You know, but basically, I, you know, my uh, book, Chapel Street, you know, I hate it sound like I'm always pushing things, but uh, it was kind of, it was inspired by a real haunting and um, that my family experienced that we never talked about for essentially 40 years when it began till the time we left the house until, till um, recently. And I've been blogging about it in my blog, um, Sean Paul, Sean Paul Murphyville.blogspot.com. I have like, I've been interviewing, doing an oral history of the house and the haunting, you know, after the book came out, because I was sort of, the reason I wrote this book was because my mother asked me, I, I had two siblings kill themselves. And my mother asked me if I thought that the entity in the house was in any way responsible for their deaths. And that's what inspired me to write this book. And once I had the rough draft on, I let one of my, my sister, one surviving sister read it. She's like, she saw what I was doing. And she's like, this is a um, cartoon version and much exaggerated version of um, what we experience." And she decided, well, we, we should all talk about it. So I'm doing a series of blogs. And I was going to, and I'm about a half of the way, halfway through, but they've been stopped by COVID too. Cause I like to do interviews in person. You know, I'm, I'm nearly done with dealing with the haunting directly. Then I'm going to go into a second series of blogs along the same in the second part of that series about the deaths of my siblings and then do a summation. So that's where I am now. And P 
people who are reading this want me to do. I was already a quarter to a third of the way through a new novel, but people are telling me I should turn these, um, I should do a nonfiction about the actual haunting. So that's probably what I'm going to do next. Hopefully that movie. I have a, um, I also have a fun screenplay that was at the option point, you know, about an American girl exploring her roots going to Italy that I wrote with a um, woman I, I've been writing a bit with called uh, named Jenna Healy Globe. She's out of Minnesota and it's a really nice script and I'm finishing up another script with her. And uh, we are really close to a option with an Italian company, an Italian producer and distributor. And um, so um, I don't know what's going to happen. That's, that's gone certainly cold and Italy was hit worse than we were. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, proportionally. And so, you know, it, you know, I'm, I'm in a state of flux right now. Um, uh, maybe I'll, t- you know, and I think my publisher, if this particularly, I'm also trying to get a film version of this done. I, I nearly had a film version set up before the book was um, even before the book was out, but the uh, deal fell through. So I'm optimistic. It was, re- there are some sites and organizations that make, you know, curated sites that say about books rights being available. And they look at all the books that the publishers send them and think, and this looks like a good one for um, movie rights. And it's a curated list. And that was getting a lot, this novel is getting a lot of interest on that. I was getting interest on it on my own. So I'm hoping to make a movie of that because the best way to sell books is to make a movie. And um, I, th- I thought it would make a good movie even when it was a book, you know. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, yeah, absolutely. What was it? Uh, uh, they always made it. Um, they always made a joke about what was what was that movie? Precious, based on the book. Yeah. Based on the precious. It was in the title. You know that that movie. Everyone calls yeah. it precious, but it had a long title. Based on the book something by Sapphire, and I can't remember yeah. the but the book had a different title. But they precious based on the book. Uh, based on the based on the book sad by sapphire and it was and it was like the that was the whole title of the movie and it was almost to like sell the book but the but apparently you know but then again the movie won a bunch uh, a number of oscars it was not yeah, a, it, a whole it, slew it, of oscars it, it, it did really well and um yeah you know i don't know if this would win any oscars but i think it would i think people would really like it i think it's um it's pretty much considering that it's a very personal piece. It's funny though. Um, what's been going on lately in my, in this book, the um, protagonist is a male and um, the first people who are interested in it, were looking to make a deal with um, make four horror films at a million dollars a piece cheap, but you know, what the heck. And uh, I would have been the fourth one in and the, and the, um, the head, the head executive producer, the money guy was like, we already have three films with male protagonist, you know, so would you change it to be a female? And to me, this is a lot. It's a story about brothers. Well, guess what? Became a story about siblings. So I did actually write the version of the script with the uh, female lead. And my other film that's currently in pre-production was also had a male protagonist and they switched that to a female protagonist as well. You know, you know, Dr. Saul Brumbeck becomes Dr. Um, Sarah Brumbeck, you know, so um, 
you know, we're getting woke over here. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm terribly sorry to hear about uh, the loss of your siblings and uh, my best, my best to you for that. And that's, and that's gotta be rough, but um, yeah, I try to, I try to encapsulate a lot of that emotion in the book. Yeah. You know, as well. You know, one of the characters is very much based on, I had a previous book called a memoir where I dealt a lot with my sister's death and um, didn't really discuss my brother's death much in it. And this book deals, you know, more with my brother than my sister. So at least I've been fair to both of them. I dedicated one of the books to my sister and another one, this one was dedicated to my brother. So I think people who knew my brother will, will see my brother in this book, you know, hopefully they, view him in a good way <laughs> now that's your memoir right no my f first book was uh, ah, let me see if I can pull this out look the promise or the pros and cons of talking with God by Sean Paul Murphy and you know this is a bold book to put this face on the cover <laughs> doing that you've got to wonder how how it could possibly sell with that face on the cover you know but it did but it did it's old enough um it was just on sale on Kindle and it got a lot of, in, you know, it seemed to sell more in the last couple months than it had in a long time. I guess in anticipation that this was, um, this book was coming out. Fantastic. So that was good. I got, I look on uh, Amazon and I got a number of rev new reviews in the last couple months. So uh, memoirs are harder to sell than um, genre novels. So it's really interesting because like, you know, of course, bookstores have become slowly becoming a thing of the past. I would go into a bookstore and I would, you know, I wouldn't specifically go for, you know, I'm not like, oh, I want to read this genre. I would just go into a store and just look for something that seems interesting. But I think now that people are mainly purchasing stuff on the Internet, you know, people, it, you don't get to like, like walk into a room and see all these different books. You know, I mean, hopefully people take advantage like internet um, sites and all that talk about new books to get you interested. Same. I feel the same way with movies. Like it was great going down to blockbuster and looking at the wall of new releases. Cause then you get to see all these made for video or made for DVD films that didn't have publicity budgets, but blockbuster always wanted to put something new up. Mm -hmm. So see dozens of films, you know, and you'd at least look at the covers of dozens of films you would have never thought to seek out on the internet. And I think, yeah, Something we're losing in the movie world and the book world is that is the ability to browse, just browse and look at a lot of different things before making your choice. Now you generally are like typing in specifically more what exactly what you're looking for and yeah. miss out on opportunities to learn new things and experience new things, in my opinion. Yeah, and you and it's funny you mentioned Blockbuster. So, you know, I I also use Tubi and Pluto and voodoo which are free streaming they have you know obviously they have they show movies with ads in the middle maybe one one to three ad breaks in these movies but i'm finding all those old cover boxes all those old cover yeah. boxes that i remember at blockbuster that i said man i i'm gonna rent that next time i'm gonna rent that next time i got the i got the new release with van damme or i got the yeah. new release with arnold or or whoever mm -hmm. but when I come back, I'm going to get this old movie because this, this cover looks crazy, this weird sci-fi movie, this weird action movie or horror movie. And so finally, now that I'm, now that I'm scrolling, you know, swiping through uh, Tubi or Voodoo and I'm seeing all those covers, I'm like, man, 
all right, I'm gonna watch this. And I'm finally getting around to watching it. And half of them are terrible, but the other half are like really like, you know, kind of cool, cheesy, you know, nostalgic eighties and nineties movies that I had, I had, I always remember seeing like these bizarre covers, cover yeah. boxes. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I, I really, one, one genre I think has really been killed is the, um, is the B action movie. I mean, they still make films like John Wick, but those are not, those are big budget films. It's sort of like a Jean-Claude Van Damme film or a mm-hmm. even Seagal film, you know, people, yeah. you know, like who would make those films. And now when you look at those films, you can see that their budgets were very small. A Chuck Norris movie or something, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, but you know, they don't make those mid level films and there's reasons why, but it's still sad that they don't make them. And the mid like the big boom was when mini DV was a format, you know, and people were shooting because then there was just a flood of really horrible, um, you know, horror movies on that were shot on mini DV, mm-hmm. you know, and you don't get, you know, now, like, like when I first got on Netflix, it was still filled with those movies. Yeah. And it was like, and it's exactly, it was those ones you'd see at Blockbuster. And now, now Blockbuster, I mean, uh, Netflix has upped its game. And now that the uh, HD stuff has come along, you don't see that same, those same quality of films. At, at least even a bad movie now will at least look good. Yeah. If it's, on, if it's on a major streaming service, it at least looks good. Absolutely. Maybe well, they have terrible sound, but... <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, you ra- uh, it's funny you mention that with those with those B movies, B, B action movies, because that's what I grew up with. That's why I loved, um, and and I know there, I know some of these are A movies too. But you know, the Rambo's, uh, yeah. Rambo, Rambo two was a really big budget B movie, if you ask me. Rambo two, anyway. But uh, you know, the Rambo's and the Rockies, the Predators, but you know, like you said, the 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 first the first six Jean Claude Van Damme movies and the, and those first yeah. five Steven Seagal movies. Um, those are the, those are the ones I grew up with, and there's a movie, there's a movie on Netflix. So our new Jean Claude, B you know B level action, amazing B level action movie is uh, Scott Atkins. He's a British martial artist, um, white guy, and then uh, Michael Michael Jai White, mm-hmm. uh, black yeah, Michael Jai White, Black Dynamite. Yeah, Black Dynamite. And I then, got uh, to meet him. I was at the. Um... He's a very nice guy. I got to meet him at the premiere of Black Dynamite because a friend of mine was one of the producers. So oh, very I was cool. extremely disappointed that that film did not take off the way it should have. It, you know, um, everyone yeah. thought it was going to be a hit. They marketed it completely wrong. Yeah, They went to the Tyler Perry. They marketed it to the Tyler Perry audience when they should have been marketing it to the college audience. Yeah. You know. hysterical uh, because they should have marketed it to the same audience as uh, Kung Pao. You remember Kung Pao, yeah. Legend of the Fist? Yeah. They should have they should have marketed it to the same audience because Kung Pao was just the dumbest thing I've ever seen. It was hysterical. It was brilliant. They took, you know, a bunch of old kung fu flicks that I don't even think were released or were were released really shortly and did terribly and they they reused the footage. They they uh they they overlapped this guy in there and it was a huge huge success and they should have done the same they should they should have marketed to the same uh crowd for black dynamite because that was a fantastic hilarious movie yeah but, the uh, martial arts worked and the yeah. comedy worked and they really captured mm-hmm. that vibe of the 70s oh yeah there's always talk every once in a while that there's going to be a sequel and michael jai white is such such a good action star and he, he is he really knows his stuff oh yeah 
um, there was another movie Michael Jai White did, and had they pumped you know another five million into it, it would have been a summer action blockbuster. I can't I can't for the life of me remember the name of it, but I remember seeing it. That you know, vicious action, decent story, just like some like uh, you know a decent story, just like uh, Sleepless with Jamie Fox. I don't know if you saw yeah. Sleepless where he was stealing money from a cartel, and it was, it was pretty much a similar kind of storyline. And it, had they pumped you know another four or five million into the budget or marketing. Yeah. Or release, or release, what have you? It could have been a summer blockbuster, but um, you know, going back to those, going back to those B actions like we had with Chuck Norris and Van Damme and Seagal, I think Scott Atkins, Michael J. White, a couple of a couple of other folks, they're they're churning them out, and a, a lot of times they're Netflix originals or or Prime originals. Uh, what is it? Uh, Hulu After Dark originals or IFC, IFC After Dark originals, but you know they're they're churning them out and and they're and they're kind of staying true to that old classic you know low budget but the best one i saw recently was uh, it was actually a british production with scott atkins because it was because he's originally from britain um avengement and definitely worth a definitely worth a watch avengement i'll check it out because i yeah. i miss those movies because we used to go to the movies all the time and a friend of mine who's also a director was always saying would say, you know, these are good, stupid movies, good, yep. dumb movies, you know. And but, you go in, something's happening the whole time. It keeps you involved. Yeah. Then you go out and you know, you know it wasn't um, Casablanca, you know. And, yeah. But it was, it was still great. And um, I only, I, the only, like, old action star I had was, um, who is it? Um, well, I don't have the, well, my boxes, I don't have that one block. Oh, here. Brian, um, Brian Bosworth. Oh yeah, oh yeah. The Boz, you know. The Boz. The Boz. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Revelation, Revelation Rush. Okay, Rush. okay. And um, he he was he was very good. He it to me he saves the movie. I mean he's he's very compelling, you know. And um, we have the wrestler Sting in the movie too, you know. He had been in a previous one of my movies, and we were told by the producer, "Hey, Sting wants to be in your movie," and we're like. Wow, that's great. We thought it was Sting from the police. Right, right. No, 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 no. no, no, no. So I've seen the trailer for Revelation Red. I'm familiar with Sting's. I'm familiar with Sting and his, and then his transition to acting. And it's a, it's a religion. It's a religion. I did, I did a lot of faith-based films. Yeah. In trouble with um, this book, um, you know, because this book is definitely a mainstream book. It has violence and sex in it and all sorts of stuff and i got this really scathing negative review from this faith-based site who was familiar with my work i mean it was definitely you know how dare you <laughs> you know it's like you know you know hell hath no fury like a faith-based critic scorned you know uh -huh. yeah you know it, you know i don't flatter myself this would be flattering myself but it was sort of like you know, I looked at this review. It's sort of like um, I was Dylan going electric at the um, Newport Jazz Festival, and the critic is like Pete Seeger trying to pull out the um, pull out the plugs. <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, yeah. That, was, that was an amazing review. I'm like, did this person even read the book? Or is, but I knew I was in trouble with him because he, you know, asked to read a copy, and I sent it to him, and he's like, um, he like a day or two later, it goes, is this faith based? 
you know, very, you know, kind of, um, I'm like, uh oh, that's never a good sign. <laughs> Does yeah. it have to be? No, nah, well, for him, I guess it did. You know, to yeah. me, um, you know, I, I've been, I write all sorts of stuff. I write comedy, I'll write horror. You know, when I, when I was a kid, the films I enjoyed most, the ones that stuck with me most, are, are the horror films, you know, watching ghost host theaters and things like that. You might mm-hmm. be a little young for that and staying up all Friday night and Saturday night watching horror films. So that was always one of my favorite genres. And I'm happy to write a book in it and happy to write some script. I had a script that did well at the, um, as a semi-final a finalist in the uh, slam dance horror competition you know but um i've been distracted by other things so i'm back into horror yeah. back into horror i got awesome. to experience it firsthand so you know now i get to write well, yeah yeah I and mean, that's that's a big deal yeah i remember i remember joe bob briggs and i remember uh yeah. i remember uh have you been a maryland marylander all your yeah. life Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so you remember Monster Theater on what, fifty or fifty-four? Yeah, I think it was like, uh, forty-five. Monster. You had Monster Kung Fu Theater, Monster Theater, Action. Uh, you know, Action Mania, or you know, all those different times of the days where they would show. You know, I missed that too. I missed the fact that um, the local over-the-air stations just play syndicated programs most of the time. Yeah. When I was growing up and through the seventies and eighties. It was still mainly movies. Mm-hmm. And I was friendly with some of the uh, sales reps over at 54, Channel 54 here, WNUV, I believe. And yep. and they were like, you know, um, I was asking them what movies do well. And it's sort of like anything with Eddie Murphy in it, they would play. And Goldie Hawn, oddly enough. Yep. The two most popular films that they played. Oh, were- yeah. The Golden Child was on the gold golden child was on like every other weekend uh uh private benjamin and overboard yeah those were on every other weekend i I remember they just they play those over and over and over again for some reason baltimore loved those movies (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) so uh i tell you what though i i found it difficult to watch those things i even told the one guy because it would sort of like be near the end of a scene and they cut to the commercial and then they, when they come out of the commercials, the scene would end and go to a fade. And I was talking to the guy. I'm like, I go, look, you know, because I start, you know, you know, I'm a professional editor. I'm like, can you, you know, I would be willing to come in and just like in an afternoon and cut these films, you know, just so that they're cut, you know, that, that the commercials are coming in the right place. Because oh, you can't do that. We have the interns do that, you know. So the interns <laughs> at the station when they cut the cut neck. They're cutting that cost, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was like, I'm happy just to come in so that if I watch it, it's not, it doesn't annoy me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I remember, I remember that and terrible and terrible censorships. Yeah. Terrible, terrible ways of cutting cusses out or, or, or I remember, didn't they like zoom in on sex scenes or they would yeah. just cut out a sex scene or something? It cut was... out. And they, in the old days, they would use, and they probably still do for the biggest budget films. They would have people do other lang- you know, um, other words in for the bad words. Yeah. But you know, for like lower independent films, which is, you know, I mean, I work on cable television. We just beep the bad words now. Though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So- I remember the first time I noticed that when they started recording alternate lines was the movie Copland with Stallone. 
mm-hmm. and Harvey Keitel about the dirty cops. And they had that small town in Jersey. So long story short, in the movie, you know, Harvey Keitel, he's a dirty cop. Robert De Niro's IA. So he's, you know, he's got a, he's uh, building a case on Harvey Keitel. So the R-rated line is uh, Harvey Keitel's, you know, talking trash about Robert De Niro. And the R-rated line is, that guy's had a hard on me, hard on for me for years. But in the PG TV, uh, he read it a line. He goes, that guy's had a file on me for years. <laughs> and that's and, and I was like, that's not what he said in the theater. Yeah. But it, it was Harvey Keitel's voice. It didn't exactly match his mouth, but it was Harvey Keitel's voice. And I that's when I realized like that's because and I and I saw that, you know, in high school, like later on in years. But when I realized they're starting to do that to make up for all these terrible edits that they're doing for the TV version, the, the modified square. And they would do that pan. Remember yeah. the uh, pan and scan? It was terrible. You don't have to worry about that as much anymore. Oh God. And now they're just showing everything as original format because everybody's got widescreen TVs now. Thank God. And well, I tell you, I, the first feature I had <laughs> a movie called charm city. It mm-hmm. was shot here in Baltimore. Some guys just out of college. I guess, you know, the cinematographer was an older guy like myself, older than me, even very skilled cinematographer. He just wanted to do a feature and I edited it. But the language was so abusive. This was like 1998 and Mm -hmm. the film has not been released yet. And it was like and I told the director, you know, because there were some scenes in particular where we could get around it. I said, you know, I hate to say it. This is going to cost you money because it will never it will never run on TV, which is an important market. And, you know, it could run on like HBO, but yeah, it's not big enough that it will be on HBO, you know? And, um, and they're like, Oh, don't, he's like, Oh, don't worry. This is going to be the way, you know, it'll be fine. And about two years later, somebody called me and said, Sean, is there any way to get around this language? Uh It was a barrier, but I think we're going to get that film finally released. One of the actors who had a VHS of it was posting clips and, People seem to be enjoying it. And I talked to the producers and there was some feuding between the people who owned the film. And I think yeah. that's all over with. And I'm like, we should at least put it on Amazon Prime, you know, well, even yeah. without them buying it, just put it up there. It was a, it's a 20 year old film. And, you know, it has that, you know, one of the things, the other genre that's really suffering is comedy. People are so afraid of being canceled by saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm comedy now you know this country had no longer has a sense of humor and um this is definitely kind of an old um raunchy misogynistic you know old kevin smith you know the film i would compare it most to be would like be like um clerks or something charm city not that good not that limited in location but you know it's um it's got a vibe like that and I think there'll be people who would respond to that sort of retro kind of comedy type attitude. Yeah. Now this is charm city. You're talking about charm city. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've, I've heard, I've seen a lot of stuff recently within the last five years about charm city, some advertisements and maybe like them trying to like push it to finally get released or something. I think I might yeah. know some, I, some people, I think I might even know some people. people you're around here. You're yeah. probably somebody who was in Johnny Alonzo or something, you know, Johnny Alonzo. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Johnny Alonzo was the star. Okay. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because, um, well, I will say that they needed some additional scenes and I wrote the additional scenes. And that's when I finally met Johnny. And I'm like, yeah, he, he's such a trip. 
Johnny Alonzo. You know, he, he's, he's always fascinating. So when mm-hmm. he's pushing it, I've had conversations with the producers. I have um, a whole closet of the work print and the, um, this was film, the work print and, you know, um, the uh, beta work print transfers and all. And I'm like, one thing I'm going to be moving and it's like, I need this out of my basement. You know, yeah. somebody, somebody must come to my house and take this stuff. Hurry up and hurry up and release this film. I'm moving. I need this out. I need this out of here. For you know, I, when I did go through it, I thought I had the, um, I thought I had the um, color timed print, which I don't film print, and I thought I had the final sound rolls, which I don't have, and I don't have the final V8, the final beta. So essentially, no one's going to be making a collector's version of it. So we don't need the all the um, work print and all that. So that could all go, you know. But I still. I'm such a film fetishist that I don't want to see anything film thrown away. The mm-hmm. guy who did the negative cutting gave it to me. And he's like, I was going to, he was owed money on the film. And he's, and he, so he sees the film to everything he had. And he told and he told him he was going to throw it away. And they thought he did. And he came over to me and he said, Sean, I love film. I can't destroy it. You know, yeah. he's like, here, you take it. So he brought it over to my house and he said, you take it. He goes, just, just don't give it back to him. <laughs> it's like, well, what am I going to do with it? Yeah, you're right. I mean, there was, there was like, uh, when I, when I went to Towson, do you still have film one, film two and film three courses? I believe they do. I don't do the um, production courses. I'm yeah. too you're, you, uh, you're doing editing. I just, no, I just teach. Um, I just teach screenwriting. Screenwriting, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Three seven seven broadcast film. <laughs> oh, I remember that one. Uh, still the same number, I think. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah. Three seven seven, and the first thing I asked the students, I go, "Do you know what the E is for?" And they go, "Electronic." I said, "No, easy." You know, <laughs> I said, "Look at the grading rubric. If you do all the, if you complete all the assignments by the due date." you will pass <laughs> if you do adequate work. I mean, you don't have to be really good. You know, good. All you have to do is add it, you know, cause I'm kind of hamstrung by the grading, you know, um, you know, so, so I tell people all they have to do is do the work on time. Some people have problems with that though. <laughs> oh, I did last semester. I did when it, when it, when it finally came to like grabbing a camera and shooting and then going to the lab and editing, that's when I started succeeding in school. But there, yeah. there were, there, there were classes where it's like, you got to write this and, 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 or you got an essay and some, it was a hit and miss for me with those kind of classes. But well, um, personally, I liked the end of last semester with the COVID though. Some students kind of fell off the map for a while. Most of them came back and delivered the papers. I wasn't so, I didn't really get on them about the due dates of things. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I really felt I got to spend more time with the students than if we were in the classroom, we were having Zoom meetings. And a lot of my classes, um, particularly near the end as they're doing the finals projects, is a lot of it is like one-on-one, you know, like you get 10 minutes to come into the class, you make an appointment because I didn't have an office or I had an office, but I didn't like to use it. But on here, I would just make them do it. And it normally my class is like 6.30 to nine or something. And I would make, you know, I would go till midnight with the kids easily. And I, you know, the ones who signed up early got on, the others would have to wait. But, 
you know, rather than just giving them 10 minutes, you know, and I really feel I was able to walk them through the process more and show them, you know, more about, you know, structure and formatting than normally, than I would normally have the time to in the normal class environment. So on one hand, it was bad because when you're, when you have students in front of you and you're looking at them, you can tell who's paying attention, who's getting it. And we never got, uh, you know, also we never got the ability to really show movies. I could show the screen and show shorts because there's a lot of shorts, but people weren't hearing them properly. So we didn't get that kind of example. But at that time that we lost on that, we gained in um, having them talk through their problems and all. So I think we made up for it. You know, yeah. so this last semester, I was kind of embarrassed that everyone got such good grades because they send, you know, the, the department secretary sends you like a breakdown of the average, how many students got this and this. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh, my God, everyone's going to think I'm the easiest grader in the world. Looking at that. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of the students really yeah. stepped up. And um, there's always at least one or two students who I really think are at professional or near professional levels who could probably go into a writing room on a sitcom or a TV show. You know, they could leave my class and walk right in there, you know, so that's always good to see. Yeah. You know, so that's amazing. So, you know, kind of touching upon that and we, and we touched upon it before, you know, our, the new normal, what, what, what's your viewpoint? What's your, you know, what are you thinking? What are some of your, your views of what we're calling the new normal? Well, I don't know what the new normal is going to be. Everything was all right. Things were in transition before the COVID. And it'll be interesting to see when they swing back, how far they swing. I'm worried about theatrical. You know, I'm also worried about the networks, the big three, you mm -hmm. know, because they have the, um, they don't have the same edge as the um, streaming services, but also in a sense, they're the biggest employers as well. You know, mm -hmm networks and they do the this, this stuff that is aimed at the widest possible audience and if those you know if the networks fail if the theaters go out i mean to me if the hollywood starts to drift more off the theaters it may give independent filmmakers you know not the people who are making films for like a hundred thousand but those people who are making films for one to five million may get their opportunity to be in the theaters like there was a horror movie i think it was called the wretched that was the number one film in America, but it was really only playing in like 15 theaters. But, you know, perhaps people like that, you know, will get a chance to get theatrical releases because the studios will continue to make fewer films and the lo lower films they'll do will end up being released straight to like Netflix. Cause a lot of these Netflix original films are just purchases that Netflix made from paramount or someone because oh, yeah. paramount does the number crunching and saying you know once we put the money in for marketing this film isn't going to make us any money mm -hmm. so they said they make a profit they sell it to netflix and netflix does fine with it but it wouldn't have done as well for people in the theater yeah. and certain films that really do really well like i remember everybody was talking about that San sandra bollock film um bird bird, bird box bird, bird box, box. And mm -hmm. they're like, oh, my God, if all those people who saw that the first weekend had seen it in the theaters, it would have been like a 150 or 175 millimeter, um, million dollar film. And I'm like, yeah, but would have everybody have gone to the theater to see it? How many, you yeah. know, because it was a good film. But if you looked at like explosions and all, you could tell that it was not, 
you know, class A special effects. Mm-hmm. I mean, the story worked and everything, but yeah, you know, it was, you know, I'm not sure that would have been as big a hit in the theaters as it was for streaming. I mean, everybody was talking about it on streaming. It would have just been another movie in the theaters. So I'm thinking that the lower, you know, um, everybody says it's streaming and this and that or cost, but really why the studios are making fewer films and fewer of these B action films is there something called clearances, which may be too complicated to get in if you don't know what they are. But basically theater chains used, it used to be like in Baltimore, there's a theater to the Senator and that would be like an A theater. Mm -hmm. A big film like Jaws would come out and no other theater within like a five mile radius could play it, you know, because it had the clearance for that area. So a big film like that would like play in six theaters. Well, a theater chain at that time may have owned 20 theaters. So they need other films. So Hollywood would always have like an A, B, a film, and then they'd have a couple of B films, you know, the kind of films that, you know, like Quentin Tarantino kindly always calls the grindhouse films, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those films would play in the uh, B theaters. Like in my neighborhood, there was a theater, the arcade, and it was a B theater. You know, it was probably a C theater. It would get the it would get the A because my family, like say if my family wanted to see Planet of the Apes with Charlton Heston, they would go to the Timonium Drive-In. The Drive-In was an A theater, and it would show up at the arcade like a year year or eighteen months later. Yep. But until then. They would be playing B westerns, B action films, mm-hmm. you know, the Hercules movies, the mm-hmm. dubbed ones. You know, they didn't play much kung fu though. You know, they didn't play much martial arts, but the biker films and things like that. So that's why they don't make as many films because with the multiplex, they can't the clearance things no longer matter, and for contractual reasons and to satisfy the chains that they have relationships with, they don't need as many films as they used to so um that's something people overlook but that's a key feature of why they're making fewer films so you know but now they're making you know if they can i don't know if people are going to pay 20 necessarily 20 dollars for like a one-time screening once COVID's over of like um, they're not at home for you know for at home for you know the trolls movie or something yeah COVID's over so, you know, we're going to find a mix. Theaters aren't dead, but once they go, it's going to it's going to change things dramatically. And it's going to change change the movie pro, you know, the movie aesthetic too, you know, of yeah. going somewhere, particularly a comedy to a packed house and that communal feel of the laughter, you know, or the communal feel of the jumps like Blair Witch Project I saw. It was unbelievably packed. You know, and there were all these false rumors. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I, I I went there uh, opening weekend. I saw Blair Witch. I remember, I remember all the hype. I remember all the trailers. I remember all the the the, the fake news on the, on that film. Yeah, yeah. I was working in New York a lot, so I heard about the film a long time, and that it was a phony movie a long time before it went public. But the audience was so into that film; they jumped, they did this and that. It was an amazing experience, and there seems to be a backlash against that movie. And I think a lot of people are embarrassed how into it they were. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, why? That, and that it was, you know, it was kind of fraudulent in that way. And, um, you know, I was almost did a film with one of the directors of that. And, you know, I got to give the guy credit, you know, for pulling that off. 
But, right. And I think it was, you know, a very compelling movie and haven't seen it since, but there's a lot of movies I felt had a certain appeal that I don't necessarily want to see it again because it's like seeing it a second time is going to, there are certain films I can watch endlessly, but there are certain films I know if I see it again, I'm, it's not going to have the same magic for me. So I don't want to ruin the experience I felt with it when I first saw it. Sure. Like E.T., for example, I mean, that would really captivated me when I first saw it. And I just know I'm not going to feel that magic again. So I won't see it again. Maybe if one of my grandkids or somebody wants to see it, then I'll watch it. But, you know, I don't seek it out. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit I'm a bit on the opposite spectrum of that, where you, you, you raise a good point where what we're getting now is not as good. You know, it's 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 uh, it's cookie cutter. It, there's there a lot of a lot of the product they're putting out there doesn't have the same uh, heart heart and soul put into it and and effort. And so I find myself just going back and watching eat the ETs and and the Rockies and the Back to the Futures. You know, for the twentieth, thirtieth, fortieth time. And that's and that's and that speaks a lot about that film. Now maybe I, I probably not ET. You know, a hundred times, but go, definitely Goonies and uh geez what do i watch i find myself watching you know binge watching all the star wars mm -hmm. um uh, again and again and again because they stand the test of time yeah you know, well i tell you one of the i think one of the major problems is that um because because of the emphasis now on the foreign market you know, they sort of can't make the idiosyncratic films that they made in the 70s and 80s anymore. The more personal visions films mm -hmm. that they used to make. Yeah. And as a result, you know, I'm not feeling necessarily the emotional connection. It's like all these superhero movies. And, you know, I, I'm not like a snob. I don't say, oh, I would never watch one. But it's like usually a summer. And of course, the summer I haven't, you know, I watch one, maybe two, you know, but I don't need to see six of them. <laughs> you know i mean but people will say exactly the opposite they'll say like well you would watch six action movies yeah but it's different you know it's like they were set in the, kind of in the real world yeah but no yeah i'm a big fan it's funny you mentioned that i'm a i'm a i'm a, I'm a big I'm a fan of the whole marvel, marvel cinematic, cinematic universe, universe every yeah, single every single one of the movies and and and, 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 funny, and, and it's funny that someone said to me said to me how can you watch all that it's like it's like 80 80 like 40 hours, hours and it's and it's and it's same same like the same movie, same movie around. Around. well well how how can how, you, how can you watch how can you how can you binge watch office on netflix on netflix more than more than one major major way through the series you watch you watched off the office season, season, season one episode one to season, season nine, nine episode 15. 15. that's the same, same amount of hours as, as you can you can almost look at the mc the marvel cinematic universe as a series, as a series. Each, episode each episode is yeah. an hour and a half to two and a half hours long um you know yeah i mean you want to get into specifics i mean they, they do build on each other and, and one movie builds two characters and then they get their own movie and it kind of like expands on these characters and expands this universe and expands expands this bigger story this bigger you know star wars-esque star trek-esque universe that marvel's trying to build but uh yeah i mean it, i think it all chalk chalks down to like what people are into i mean if you're not into superheroes you're not into superheroes uh, i hate to say it. maybe <laughs> more of a dc guy oh okay <laughs> that's fine oh and, and it's and and yeah like uh 
that's what's frustrating me because really my top two favorites are Superman and Batman. Yeah. But the better movies are the Marvel movies. Yeah, that is frustrating too. I have a podcast. Yep. We recently did the original Superman, which is underlooked today. It, ev- it invented oh. the way the genre is done today. And I would say after that Superman, it's the um, Dark Knight is probably my second favorite um, of the movies. And um, so, I mean, I, I do enjoy I do enjoy the Marvel movies too, but I don't need to see you know the Fantastic Four. You know, I don't need to see like eight different superhero movies a year. You know, I'll see the big marquee one, you know, uh, you know, but, you know, I also, I'm getting sick of CGI and like I saw Aquaman, I actually saw it on a cruise. So it was good seeing it at sea. And um, it's sort of like nothing in the movie that's real. <laughs> you know? It's like nothing. Absolutely. Everything is invented, you know? Yeah. And uh, not to say I didn't enjoy it, but it's sort of like, I like things to be grounded, you know? Sure. And I like, I, you know, like even superheroes, I like, would like superheroes to solve problems that we face every day and not necessarily like invaders from another universe. You know, it's like Batman is battling criminals. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, things like that. And when, yeah, and when and when Netflix pulled out the Punisher and and Dare the series the series uh, Daredevil and Punisher and even Luke Cage, um, it was it was way less CGI. Um, you know, they pulled off they pulled off some special effects with Luke Cage, essentially being Superman. You know, bulletproof and mm-hmm. and he was getting shot up and they were just bouncing off of him. But I mean, the Punisher's human, yeah, strictly human and he was like you said, kind of dealing with yeah. normal everyday kind of situations like that. And, the, and daredevil, you know, daredevils a, has a bit of a chemical enhanced superpower of hearing and all his other senses. And he's blind but somehow, but, <laughs> but no, but, but somehow they figured out how, somehow they figured out to have that stunt man, that, that martial artist be blindfolded mm-hmm. and doing some of the, the sickest fight scenes yeah and it wasn't cgi it was like legit one shot one long one long duration take fight scenes up and down the hallway and this guy is being blindfolded yeah and uh you know that they, they found their more darker side of marvel uh, and and it's not you know chock full of cgi it's it's uh just straight up just camera rolling and guys beating each other up type of deal yeah Yeah. but um yeah no i mean i i agree i i i think there it it, there is a bit too much cgi out there and and we need to get back to like like we were discussing earlier like those van dams and those chuck norris's where it was just you know one guy against another guy one guy maybe against three guys like the jackie chance like yeah you know, exactly. huge fan huge fan of the older jackie chance the 80s and 90s jackie chance yeah yeah when he was still throwing himself off buildings and things yeah <laughs> yeah yeah he, he got too old they kind of like oh okay i've made enough money let's see what cgi and why well, have you seen these with. later steven seagal films where it's like he's not even the action guy <laughs> It's like he's got young people that people go out and do most of the fighting with him, and he might run yeah. for something. But um, I, I hate to say I hate to say that I kind of have to go because I think some 
people are going to come rushing into my house. Oh, hey, no worries. No worries. No worries. Um, I don't mean to cut you short or cut me short because I could talk all day. No yeah. problem. So could I. So could I. So uh, one last point for our viewers. Yes. One last point. Uh, no, oh, one me, last point. Oh, do you, do you have one last point for our viewers? Um, no, I just say um, take advantage. If you got the time, take advantage of the time to be creative. You know, at least you write something. You can always... You might be not should be able to shoot. You may not be able to produce, but you can always write, you know, and um, take take full advantage of that. I feel sorry for the crew people, you know. Yeah. So. Well, any last any last plugs? Uh, Chapel Street, yes, Chapel Street, and be sure to check out my webpage, um, Sean Paul Murphyville dot blogspot dot com, where you can learn all things Sean Paul Murphy. You can read about that true haunting. It's a series of blogs called the, the Haunting of 21 St. Helens Avenue. So. All right. All right. Well, you heard it here at Chapel Street and Sean Paul Murphy. Thanks again for coming on the show and, and chatting it up. And uh, I, I know I know you got to go, so I'm, I'm going to let you get out of here. A little hand peeking in. That's, yeah. <laughs> well, hey, that. That's the new normal. I get it. That's, it doesn't. That's the new normal. <laughs> All right, Sean. Well, well. Thanks again to my viewers out there. Like, subscribe, share, comment, ring the bell for notifications, and check us out next time. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. <laughs>